Our scripture reading this evening will be from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 8 through 10. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. I want to thank you all for being here this evening and just to reiterate what I've said a couple of other times, just thank you all for your hospitality and for your kindness. You all are incredible people and I'm just very thankful to be here to worship with you guys and to just be able to serve in some capacity. We had a great Bible class this morning from Alex. We had a great lesson this morning from John about what it means to be a Christian. And I think what we can all agree on no matter what is that there are a lot of debates that happen in the religious world about what we can and cannot do. Whether we're talking about worship or day-to-day life, that question constantly arises, what does God expect of me? What does God actually want me to do? What is he pleased by? What is he displeased by? And that question has led people in different directions. Some say that since the New Testament does not contain these long lists of specific commands to guide through every facet of life, like the Old Testament does, some would say that New Testament authority is either less strict or perhaps non-existent. I think about passages like Galatians 5 and verse 1, sort of along the same idea of James 1.25 about the new covenant being the perfect law of liberty. And it's that word liberty that throws people off. In these ideas of freedom of liberty, we have to consider what are we actually being freed from? What are we being liberated from? I think what's very clear from the New Testament is that Jesus has freed us from the old law, but not necessarily from law altogether. I think in a similar way, Jesus Jesus has freed us from sin, but not necessarily from the obligation to avoid sin. As a matter of fact, we are still very much under that obligation. Some genuinely searching for biblical authority over their lives, some that are genuinely trying to figure out what God wants from them, they search for for the Old Testament commands for what they should do. Because from what they understand, the Old Testament just seems to be more specific and just gives more of a guide for what they should do. I'm reminded in particular of this one time I was at a restaurant with some friends. And this lady walks in, and she saw our Bibles in hand, and so she asked us, Hey, so where are you guys going to church? We told her about the local congregation that we were attending. And she said, Well, you know, I've been trying to find a church lately that truly follows the Bible in every way. And we told her about the New Testament church, and we explained to her, Hey, you know, we we try to follow biblical authority in this congregation. We try to do things the best way that we can. And she said, no, not the, not the Church of Christ. And so we were, we were a bit taken aback, and we asked her, okay, how come? And, and I, I don't say this to poke fun at her. She, she said that she felt as though there were some dietary regulations that the New Testament church didn't follow. Um, and so we tried to point her to Acts chapter 10 and tried to show that under the New Covenant, all food has been made clean. And how Peter had that, had that vision three separate times, as Acts 10, 16 says, But she was really, really just convinced in her mind that under the New Testament, we still needed to follow these dietary regulations of the Old Testament. And because of that, she just wasn't really willing to hear us. There are a lot of people like that out there. 
And I say that because there are many people who are genuinely trying to find authority for what they do in their lives. I think that's just an example of a lady who genuinely was trying her best and just missed the mark. The point is here is that we don't live under the old law anymore. We've moved on to something better, something more complete. And we don't follow the Old Testament's commands, nor do we live in the specific manner of life that it gave the Israelites to model. However, one question I want to ask us today is if these responsibilities that we have in the covenants, that God's people have between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, if they're really all that different. What does God desire in both, in both covenants? Well, for one, there's the idea of doing what God has actually said, right? In Exodus 15 and verse 26, God makes it very clear. If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. So basically the idea is, you do what I say, I'm going to keep you safe, and if not, I'll discipline you. But the, the whole point is that God desired total obedience from his people. Ecclesiastes 12, 13-14, similar matter. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Then think about John 14 and verse 15. This is as Jesus is having this discourse with the disciples, mainly in an effort to just encourage them, to comfort them. And he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. A very profound thought. And so what Jesus says there is that if you love me, you'll show that by doing what I say. 1 John 2 and verse 3 poses a similar idea, and it says that if we have come to know God, that will be exemplified by our doing what he has said for us to do. And so the point that John makes in both of these passages is that if, we're, if we truly love God, if we truly know God, we're going to show that by doing what he's actually told us to do. Here's another one. Being holy as God is holy. If you go with me to 1 Peter 1, verses 15 through 16 for a moment, we're going to see that Peter makes a very interesting quotation. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So he decides to quote Leviticus 19 and verse 2. Why? I, I thought we weren't living under that anymore. Well, it's because the idea of holiness is, is, not, is not gone just because we live under the new covenant. We still have the requirement to be holy people. And that's something that is often missed. Just like this third point, loving God and his people. Do we remember this enough? Leviticus 19 and verse 18, love your neighbor as you love yourself. And then John 13, 35 makes the point that the people will know that all of us, and here's the principle mainly, they'll know that we all are Jesus' disciples if we have love for one another. That's the point that he makes to his disciples then. That's the point that we can take away from that now. And so in truth, the covenants are the same in what they call us to do. They call us to completely submit our lives, worship, thoughts, and beliefs to Almighty God. However, there tends to be a crucial misunderstanding that occurs even in the Lord's church. We often search for an explicit commandment or our condemnation of a belief or a practice 
And we try to find that as a means to, to say whether this is right or wrong. And this works in many cases. That's the right place to start is by searching for biblical authority. Too strict an adherence to this sole manner of interpretation, however, can lead to some problems. These are not trick questions, but just think through this. Where in the New Testament, word for word, does it say, you shall not gamble, you shall not use profanity, you shall not view pornography, you shall not drink, or you shall not smoke? Where does it say those things word for word? It's not a trick question. It doesn't say those things word for word. But here's where sometimes a mix-up happens. Some would say that because God does not outright condemn or commend these practices in Scripture, that God is pleased by or tolerant of these activities and more under the New Testament system. There are many atheists out there and many sincerely struggling Christians who look to examples like these and say, See, this is why I can't trust God fully. This is why these people can view God as morally inconsistent. Because what they see in the Old Testament versus the New Testament is two entirely different matters of communication. However, I would tell us today that that's an antiquated way of thinking. May I call it an Old Testament way of thinking. God has given us the full and complete revelation and therefore he has some special requirements of us. 2 Peter 1 and verse 3 says that his divine power is granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And I think that word all needs to be underlined again, again, and again. There's nothing that pertains to our lives as Christians that we can't know from studying the scriptures. We are kingdom citizens. And kingdom living often involves so much more than just, than just trying to figure out by just doing the explicit commandment or, or condemnation or commendation of an action. It means so much more. It means that we actually search deeper than that. Jesus often rebukes the Pharisees for their refusal to do this. In Matthew 12, 3-14, this is the story of on the Sabbath where the disciples are eating and then Jesus heals the man with the withered hand. What the Pharisees didn't notice is that the Sabbath law permitted temple service. It permitted circumcision. It permitted taking care of animals. And here was the key point that they didn't get, taking care of each other. These weren't things that Jesus just made up on the fly to mess with them. These were things that were always there from the beginning, but they thought that only the explicit do or don't mattered. They thought that was it. When I say that the Pharisees and those religious leaders gave in to an Old Testament way of thinking, I'm not putting the blame on God there. Not at all. What I'm saying is that they were not looking more deeply. They were not looking in the way that Jesus would want them to look. And he calls us to spiritual maturity today. While many deluded themselves into thinking that only the explicit things mattered, Jesus told us and showed us that more was necessary. As we live under the New, under, under the New Testament Christianity system, may we understand that our faith is based upon the principle of discernment. It's based upon the principle of wisdom is based upon being willing to think through complicated issues and not just try to find the easy way out. While some may think that only the explicit do's and don'ts matter, God calls us to be spiritually mature, discerning people that think in a New Testament way. 
And I want to show us this morning that we are meant that we are meant to look at the Old Testament as a guide to an to a spiritually immature group of people that had an incomplete revelation. But Jesus, here's what he did. He brought the full and complete revelation so that we could be full and complete. John 1:17 says that the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. And what's the point? It's saying that all the truth, all that we need to know to be complete in our lives, Jesus came and brought in that finished, complete revelation. So let's talk about the Old Testament for a moment. The Old Testament prepares us. Prepares us for what? We'll get there. Think about Romans 7 and verse 7 for a moment. Paul says that without the old law, he would not have known sin. There are a lot of debates about whether this is about Paul or if this is about just an Old Testament figure that Paul's just making up for the sake of example. I really don't think it matters for the point. The point is that the old law codified sin so as to give them a flashlight by which to guide their steps. I mean, think about Psalm 119, verses, verse 105. We sing it in the hymn. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path, right? This whole idea of being guided by what God's word says. And that's certainly applicable today. We need to keep singing that song. But think about how especially potent it was in the Old Testament system. The whole idea is codify the sin, make them aware of their sin, and show in every facet of their lives how to avoid it. God made the Israelites more aware of what they were doing wrong and how they could fix it. Think about Romans 15 and verse 4, which says that whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction. And ultimately, he says that it was written for that instruction so that we could have hope. I've heard it said that the Old Testament is for our learning and not for our law, and I think that's accurate. Part of the Old Covenant's purpose was to give us hope for the then impending New Covenant, which is just the better covenant, taking us from the authority of Moses and the prophets to Jesus and the apostles. I think about Matthew 17 and the story of the transfiguration. Jesus takes three of his disciples with him. They go up and suddenly Moses, Elijah, Moses and Elijah are there too. The suggestion is thrown out, hey, this is great. You know, we'll get one tent for you, Jesus. We'll get one over here for Moses and one over here for Elijah. It'll be great. That wasn't the goal, though. In verse 8 says they saw no one but Jesus only. The whole point was Jesus is here. You listen to him. There's been a power shift. Think with me to Galatians 3, 19 through 29. We're going to especially emphasize verses 24 through 25. And what this ultimately shows, as many of these passages show, is that the Old Testament was never the fully realized plan. In verse 24, So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Whether you want to say guardian there or you want to say tutor there, the point is exactly the same. A tutor gives a student principles by which they can prepare for an upcoming examination. In a similar way, a guardian will protect someone who is perhaps just immature or is unable to take care of themselves yet. They can't do this independently yet, and so a guardian guides them along that path, guards them along that path, may I say. And so I think about that in relation to the word faith that's mentioned multiple times. If you look in verses 19 through 29, faith is mentioned all over the place and how the Old Testament was to do its job until faith came. 
But wait a second, I thought Hebrews 11's whole point was that these Old Testament heroes had faith. They did. But Paul's talking about a different kind of faith here. Romans 10, 17 says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Not by the word of Moses, not by the word of David, not by the word of Elijah, but by the word of Christ. And so we ask that question of what is faith and Paul answers it. Here's another question that I think Paul answers. Turn with me to Deuteronomy 29 and verse 29. And this is a verse that I don't claim to know the full story behind, but what I can say is that I think it is often misunderstood. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the, secret, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. So once again... Even though this passage is sometimes used to say we don't know everything and therefore I don't need to worry about doing everything, this passage seems to say the opposite. We don't know everything, but here's what we do know, and we're going to use that information to guide us to full obedience. But but here's the idea I want to get across here. The secret things, the unrevealed things. Clearly there were some things that the Israelites didn't yet know. Some things that they were so far removed from, they would just have no idea what was coming other than what they could read. And when we turn to Ephesians 3, 3 through 5, I think we get a general idea of what could have been talked about in one of these unrevealed ideas. Paul says, How the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, You can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. That mystery that he talks about there is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, something they would have just never conceived at the time. But I think there's a principle here, too. When Deuteronomy 18 talks about a prophet like Moses... Acts 3, 22 through 23, goes ahead and shows that that prophet is Jesus Christ. Peter quotes that passage and says, it's Jesus. The mystery is solved. There's no further need for investigation. I even think about Jeremiah 31, uh, 31 through 34. It talks there about um, a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And in that covenant, it said that God will be as their husband. And when you look at Ephesians 5.25, what does it say? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. We get these ideas all throughout. And and even Jeremiah 31.33, which says that the law would be written on their hearts. I think Colossians 3.16 would have something to say about that. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. When we study, when we're diligent in that study, We're able to really have God's word in us and able to understand. So here's my point in all this. These passages call us to understand that the New Testament does not just give a new list of codes, but a new way of thinking that's supposed to guide us into a new way of life. And so I mentioned that the Old Testament prepares us for something. Well, I think the New Testament's the test. When we think about the New Testament and what exactly it calls us to do and how exactly it calls us to make decisions, this is not an original list. 
you can search the scriptures and you can find these. This is simply what the scriptures set out as a way for us to think through complicated issues of all kinds. And we understand that not everything is a matter of thou shalt or thou shalt not. As I be subject to an Old Testament way of thinking. I don't want to be facetious at all, but I think what I've just learned from doing this study and what I pray that we all learn from this study is that very often the command is thou shalt figure it out. And so how exactly are we able to do that? Well, it starts with this first step, biblical authority. As I mentioned before, the first step that we should take is search for explicit or implicit biblical authority for what we want to do. And if it's not there, we don't do it. Matthew 28 and verse 18, Jesus says that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Then Colossians 3.17 continues that thought by basically saying that whatever we do, in word or deed, to do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, or by the authority of Jesus Christ. And I mentioned 2 Timothy 3.16-17 here, because among all the things the scripture is profitable for, it mentions that by the words of scripture, the man of God may be complete, fully furnished for every good work. Now I'm combining some translations there, but I think the, the idea there is if we follow the scriptures, we're going to find authority for what we can do, and we're not going to find authority for what we can't do. Colossians 1.18 makes it very clear that Jesus does indeed hold all authority over his kingdom, the church. And so what does that mean? Can we go to Moses or Elijah or David to know what we can do in a worship service on Sunday morning? I wouldn't say so. I think the whole point of the transfiguration, while multifaceted, I think the, the idea that I want to get across for this is that, again, there's been a power shift. If I want to know whether or not I can use an instrument of music in worship, I cannot go to the Psalms and find, and find Davidic authority for it. We live under the covenant of Christ, and therefore I seek authority for what I want to do by looking to the words of Jesus Christ and his holy apostles. Here's another step. Wisdom. When I think about a passage like Ephesians 5.17, it says to therefore not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. The idea is that I can't just walk around the Christian life and think I'm not going to have to reason my way through things. I'm not going to have to discern my way through things. Look with me at Hebrews um, 5 and verse 14 for a moment as well. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. By constant practice. That takes time. Uh, that's the reason why in, in the bulletin article this morning I mentioned patience, something that we must offer to the new Christian, because this takes time to learn. Wisdom is a difficult thing to come by, but if we study God's word, we can get there. Here's a third point. A renewed mind that's diametrically opposed to the flesh. And for defining that, let's just go to Romans 12 and verse 2. It says to do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Here's what's not being said. It's not saying try every sinful behavior, test every sinful behavior, and figure out what feels right at the end of the day. I think it's a similar idea to 1 Thessalonians 5.21. 
to test all things and to hold fast only to that which is good. Whether we're talking about something that a preacher says behind the pulpit or we're talking about something that we want to do in a worship assembly or in our day-to-day lives, the idea needs to be, is this good for my spiritual health or am I purely focusing what would feed my flesh? I think about Ephesians 2 and verse 10 along that line, the idea of us having been created for good works in Jesus' name. And I especially want to look at Galatians 5 for a moment. And when I think about Galatians 5, one of the things that just stands out to me is how this passage even calls us to discernment. Galatians 5, verses 16 through 25. But we're really going to focus on verse 17 for a moment. It says, For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other. Does it say that you can have both in the same hand? Can I, can I grasp the flesh with one hand and grasp the Spirit with another hand? Or is it saying that I have to use both hands to lift one of them? I think it's very clear there's a decision that has to be made. Like John said this morning, Christianity involves a choice. And if I'm going to choose between the flesh and the Spirit, I need to make sure I understand the consequences of each of those steps. I even think about verse 21, where after this list of sinful behaviors goes on, what it says is envy, drunkenness, and things like these. So it doesn't list everything that could be fleshly. It says things like these. And the idea would be discern through what those things could be and avoid them. Another step I think about is a desire for unity. Turn me to 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 10. And this is a passage that reasonably and justifiably is used in talking about why religious division is wrong. And it still says that. But at the same time, I think in principle, the idea of unity guiding our decisions is an important one. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you may, that you may be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Philippians 2, verses 2 through 4 even talks about this idea of selflessness, which may not often come up when we're just talking about the worship assembly, but we need to be selfless in what we do in day-to-day life or when we all come together and hopefully start one another to good works, as Hebrews 10, 24 through 25 would say for us to do. Another idea is, are we doing things that have a good appearance to outsiders and believers alike? And sometimes I think I ignore this too. I ignore all of these a lot of times, and we're all working on that. That's why we're here. But when I think about Matthew 5, 13 through 16, and it mentions being salt of the earth and being a light to the world. If one light bulb in here goes off right now, it's going to seem a bit inconsequential because we have all these other lights. We can still see just fine. But if all the lights turned off all at once, and there's one light in the corner of the room that's still shining bright, That's more impactful, isn't it? Everyone knows to walk towards that light if they can't see everything else. They know to walk over there. And ideally, that's what the world needs to be able to do. Salt has no impact if, A, it loses its taste, or there's no food that it's touching. If I just dump it on the ground, there's no impact by it. We need to be out and about doing things that are good in the eyes of outsiders and believers alike. I even think about 1 Timothy 3 and verse 7, which is a qualification for an overseer. 
the whole idea of having a good appearance to the outsider. In Colossians 4 and verse 5, saying for us to walk in wisdom towards them. Holiness. Hebrews 12 and verse 14 makes it very clear that we are not going to see God if we are not holy people. And in 1 Peter 2 and verse 9, Peter refers to us as a holy nation. That's what we need to be as the Lord's church. And ultimately, are we thinking in view of our heavenly citizenship? Are we setting our minds on things above? Can I live my life and at the end of the day sit there and say, I exemplified Philippians 3 and verse 20. My citizenship is in heaven. Did I exemplify that? These are the challenges that we have in the Christian life. And I'm just saying these, these are hard steps. These are not steps that I claim to have perfected. None of us can say that we've perfected it. But I think Romans 7 and verse 6 stands true here. This is the new way that is of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. There's a question that comes from that word spirit. I often will hear people say, well, I try to not pay as much attention to the scriptures because we have the Holy Spirit living within us. And therefore, there's not as much of a need for us to care about what the scriptures say. I would simply respond to that. How can I live by the spirit if I've given no care or consideration to what the spirit has said to me? If I don't look in the scriptures and see what the Spirit has communicated to everyone who wants to live a godly life, I'm not living by the Spirit at all, am I? So how can I live by the Spirit? These passages give us a bit of a clue. If you look at 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 6, Paul says that the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. And we look at all this contextually. What Paul's point is, is that the old law kills. Why? Because we don't live under it anymore. This is not the way to spiritual fulfillment anymore. The new covenant is. And therefore, the letter, a.k.a. the old law, does kill. And the spirit, a.k.a. the new law, gives life. Because that's the actual system that we live under in order to please God today. 2 Timothy 3 and verse 15 mentions how the, how the scriptures can make one wise unto salvation. It works for Timothy and it works for us too. We talked about Ephesians 3 and verse 4. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. And these three final scriptures especially are important. 2 Peter 1 and verse 21. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. No person just woke up one day and said, well, I'm going to write some scripture. Let me just make something up, write it down, and claim it to be of apostolic authority. No. The Spirit has gone to great lengths to make sure that what's written in the scriptures is authoritative. And that's verifiable as the word of God. Ephesians 6.17 would have something to say about that too. The sword of the Spirit is the word of God. The Spirit is the agent, but... Oh, the word of God is, is its sword. It is its weapon. It's its instrument. And we can't just ignore what the Spirit has said in the Scriptures if we claim to live a Spirit-filled life. Frankly, we're insufficient without the Scriptures. But turn with me to Hebrews 4 and verse 12. As we really just hit this home, just the idea that 
I cannot claim to really live in a way that's guided by the Spirit if I don't pay attention to this single fact. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. In all of this, the idea is that God has cared enough about us to give us a full and complete revelation, the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints, Jude in verse 3. And there's a reason why he did that. There's a reason why he went to this, to this length to make sure that we could all have access to this, to make sure that we could all be spiritually complete by having the full revelation. It's because of 1 Timothy 2 and verse 4. God cared enough to give us the scriptures because he wants us to know that he desires for all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. And may I just say a complete knowledge of the truth. When I think about Psalm 119, verses 9 through 11, again, concerning its, re- its relevance to the old law especially, but it mentions how ultimately a person keeps his way pure by guarding it according to God's word. With our whole hearts, we have to seek him, and we can't wander from his commandments if we're to do that. So what do we do? We store up his word in our hearts that we may not sin against him. God wants us to understand that message. The same way that in Acts chapter 2, there's a group of men there who are hearing Peter's sermon, people who perhaps have, were physically part of Jesus being put on the cross, or people that approved of the execution. All these people there that have had these different walks of life. And in verse 37 of Acts chapter 2, the text says that these people were cut to the heart. And they say, men and brethren, what shall we do? They're probably perplexed. They're probably heartbroken at what they've done. After Peter basically points in their face and says, you killed the fulfillment of the scriptures. You killed him. Many that think they're righteous, many that think they did what was right, you put our Savior on the cross. And when they ask that fateful question, Peter responds very clearly in Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The same way they were saved then, we can be saved by that same manner now. And I mention this today because we've been talking about thinking in a New Testament way. But what does any of this matter if we're not New Testament Christians? Christians that purely look to the New Testament for our authority and what we do in manners of worship and in manner of life. Maybe you're listening today and you want to live by the Spirit, but maybe you've just never known how. Maybe you've never known that the Scriptures are the way to really get us there. Maybe you want to study more and learn all about it. Maybe you were walking in the way of righteousness, but maybe you fell away. Maybe you embraced a life of sin and just don't know how to come back. What I want to tell you is that Jesus does want you to come back. He wants you to believe what he said. He wants you to repent of your sins, confess that he's Lord, be baptized, and he invites you to live a faithful life. And so what I want to tell you today is that, yes, as New Testament Christians, we are to live 
in a way that, ma- that shows New Testament thinking. We're not going to just look for the explicit do's and don'ts. We're going to actually think through and discern, pro- and discern through problems that we're having in our lives. Questions that we have. We're going to think through those. But if you're not a Christian tonight, the biggest thing I want you to think about is to become a New Testament Christian by being immersed in the waters of baptism for the remission of your sins. Acts 22 and verse 16. If there's anything we can help you with, please come forward now as we offer heaven's invitation. And stand and sing.